Hello and welcome to a special, a bigger cloud edition of the Culture File Weekly, which we're going to spend in the company of the filmmaker Tygo Sullivan. O'Sullivan joined us some time back on an edition of the Culture File Debate on the subject of not knowing. And it's from that ground that the programme you're going to hear now sprouted as we bring together some of the pieces O'Sullivan created for us in his Cultural History of Ignorance, titled The Cloud of Unknowing, as Tygo Sullivan explains. Some months ago, the good people at Culturefile got in touch, asking me to take part in one of their debates. The topic was not knowing, a subject I was known to know something about. I work as a filmmaker, making essayistic films that start from a position of not knowing, as I put it on the show. For me, curiosity is the main driver. I tend to pick fairly big subjects like the moon. And these are not subjects that I set out as an expert on, far from it, but I kind of pick a large frame and then try and find my way through that subject, led by my own curiosity, hoping that then when the viewer sees the film, that they'll come with me on a kind of a journey of co-curiosity. The show seemed to go quite well. Well enough, in fact, for the producers to contact me again recently and ask if I might make a short series of radio essays on the broad subject of not knowing. Flattered once more, but this time more anxious, I hesitantly agreed and dug out the old notebook and cards that I'd filled ahead of the original debate. Crib notes of a sort, thoughts and ideas I knew something about within the infinite subject of not knowing. The dark side of the moon, Montan and the essay as literary form, the Tower of Babel, Borges's Library of Babel, Babylonian accounting and the emergence of writing, the accountant's truth, the unknown soldier, insider dealing, outsider art, that is art made by people with no formal training and often without any knowledge of the conventions of their chosen medium, conspiracy theories and the alluring conviction of mass ignorance, Miles Nicopolin's bores, Stevie Wonder's Mr. Know-it-all, George Know-all, could I write a cultural history of know-all men without becoming the thing I'm describing? The risk is perhaps too great. The ship of fools, confederacy of dunces. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. Politics seems a kind of high church of not knowing, a realm where knowledge has little or no value, where truth is like fog and nobody has ever been wrong. I could write on how this has shifted and changed over time, from Marcus Aurelius to our strange present. Yesterday I went, uh, as, as we all must, uh, 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 to, to Peppa Pig world, uh, it, 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 it has a... Pig ignorant. A, when I was growing up, the word ignorant was used primarily to describe someone lacking not in knowledge, but in manners, lacking knowledge of manners, perhaps. I wonder what this might say about what a society values and how that has changed over time. What knowledge is deemed important, such that not having it marks one out for scorn. You know nothing. I know nothing. <laughs> Faulty Towers, famously from Barcelona, was in the Spanish dub of the sitcom A Native of Naples. In Catalonia, he was Mexican. The history of racism is entwined with the history of knowing and not knowing. The mocking is stupid of those whose knowledge is considered worthless. Shibboleths. The men of Gilead said unto him, Art thou an Ephraimite? If he said nay, then they said unto him, Now say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And they took him and slew him. How is it that I heard about these strange peoples and languages as a child? Eastern Pomo. Certain languages, such as Eastern Pomo, native to an indigenous people of Northern California, feature evidential markers 
suffixes and prefixes that indicate how the speaker knows the thing they are reporting. The sentence, the house is burnt, would necessarily indicate that the speaker has felt the heat, had seen the fire, had heard of the flames from someone else, or is merely supposing. I am amazed at the implications for a society that would hardwire evidence into its ways of thinking and being. But the days of guys like me going on the radio to talk about indigenous languages they don't speak are thankfully long gone. Mary Midgley. This was something I did manage to speak about on the radio, but it might be worth revisiting. The British philosopher Mary Midgley, I think, uh, wrote brilliantly about this, where she said that the, the humanities and economics and non-science arenas hold up a version of science that's a, a, over a century out of date, that science itself, particularly physics, incorporates not knowing, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle being a fundamental aspect of that. I did study physics once, but that was a long time ago now. I worry that like Heisenberg's electron, the very act of looking at a physics book now would interfere with my ability to understand it. The Lost Library of Alexandria, Alexander and the Gordian Knot, Inca Knotted Strings, the Double Empathy Bind, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? A landmark 1974 philosophical paper by Thomas Nagel on the phenomenology of human consciousness and the impossibility of knowing what it is like for a bat to be a bat. Could I write about this? I could call it what it is like to be a philosopher and expound on the impossibility of my knowing what phenomenology actually is. Imposter syndrome. I was beginning to feel that I was suffering from this. My notes make the point that this phenomenon, with its quasi-medical name, pathologizes a lack of confidence as a personal flaw. Something to be gotten over, to be life-coached away. The supreme confidence of the kind that marks elites which underpins so many careers in politics and elsewhere, is, according to some, attainable by all. But what of real impostors? The bluffers, the knowalls? What does a culture of faking it and making it tell us about the worth of the gaps in our knowledge, the true curiosity that drives discovery and possibility? A last underlined scribble in my notebook reads, not knowing as a way towards knowing. This is the bit I forgot to say on the radio. And the only real point here, not knowing has no merit in itself. Its power is as a way of discovering. I was born, I was told, at the start of a remarkably hot summer. It was, I was told, a summer of endless, cloudless skies. At that time, it was one of the hottest summers recorded, beaten since into mid-table mediocrity by a series of subsequent heat waves, of which I have a patchwork of vivid memories and a few photos in folders somewhere. The last seven years have been the hottest since records began, a phrase that is generally understood to mean since 1880, when continuously recorded climate information became truly global. The late 19th century was an era of data and statistics, of census analysis, of business indices, of educational records, the recording of detailed information, the plotting of graphs over time, the improvement of future outcomes through insight from past trends. These were the ultra-modern ideas of the day, folded into advances in mathematics, 
concepts from evolutionary biology, high-speed communication, and a general codification of knowledge and things. 1884 saw the invention of the machine-readable punched card, an innovation that encouraged and accelerated the use of data and statistics in public health, business, population analysis, meteorology, and countless other fields. Herman Hollerith's invention, a kind of machine memory, would become the backbone of 20th century computing. In 1911, his company merged with three others to become the Computing Tabulating Recording Company, renamed in 1924 IBM. 1884 was also the year in which Jorge Luis Borges, writing in 1942, chose to set one of his greatest stories, Funes the Memorius. It is the tale of a Uruguayan savant, Irineo Funes, who after an accident is left with a seemingly infinite capacity for memory. In the town of Freybentos, the narrator meets Funes, who claims, I myself alone have more memories than all mankind since the world began. The young man sits alone in a dark room, able to recall days of his life in their entirety. He remembered not only every leaf of every tree in every patch of forest, but every time he had remembered or imagined that leaf. He knew the forms of the clouds in the southern sky on the morning of April 30th, 1882. Local meteorological records exist prior to 1880, of course. An entire science, paleoclimatology, reaches back millennia, mapping the world's climate across time, using tree rings, ice cores, the shells of ancient crustaceans, chemical deposits, and other proxies. The human record of our weather is vast, however incomplete and unscientific. From oral histories of great floods to accounts of failed harvests to the timeless obsession of artists with the sky, there is no shortage of material from historians of the weather. Within the arts, the most dramatic example is surely 1816, the year without a summer. Across Europe, a great red-tinged cloud hung in the sky, carried from Indonesia, where the previous April Mount Tambora had erupted in one of the most devastating volcanic events the world has ever seen. Hail and frosts marked a remarkable June in the northern hemisphere. Crops failed, and a continent reeling from years of war fell under a dark spell. The English writer Shelley and her husband-to-be Percy travelled to Lake Geneva. Stuck inside, in the miserable weather, they took to telling horror stories. Frankenstein emerged from this gloom. Elsewhere, painters such as Caspar David Friedrich, Joseph Turner, and John Crome captured the strange skies, the perpetual darkness, the eerily faint sun, the clouds, the endless clouds. Looking at the paintings of 1816, it is hard not to feel a shiver at the apocalyptic, murky haze that hangs over everything, to feel a chill at the sight of this cold, red world. These events mark a kind of twilight of the subjective record, occurring as they did mere years before the first photograph and the dawn of the great statistical age in which we still live. The world since that time has been measured and recorded in ever greater detail. Information and image, the two strands of a new objectivity, steadily accrued over the century that followed in the service of business, science, education, sports, technology, 
finding darker application in the areas of eugenics, criminology, security, war, exploding finally into almost every aspect of human life, from Fitbits to key performance indicators. The relentless mining of data turns up new ways of measuring, recording, predicting, knowing every day. Our infinite library of information is kept on an infinite series of punched cards that spin incessantly, consuming enough energy to affect the climate data that are in there somewhere. Graphs of global temperatures with their relentless upward trajectories are lost in a rising sea of data, a vast cloud of unknowing. If you search the more obscure corners of YouTube for clouds, you find all sorts of strange and pointless things. Five hours of flying through Cirrus and Cumulus, set to soothing music. A handheld shot of the sky from a bus stop in London, 2012. Dutch bad weather in 2011. Through IBM's new Blue Cloud offering, businesses, governments and researchers can do things they never imagined with cloud computing. You can recall, if you like, the clouds in the southern sky on the morning of April 30th, 2022. When Borges's narrator visits Irenaeo Funes for the last time, he finds the young man tormented by his own mind. He can sleep only by turning to the one point on the horizon unknown to him, a peaceful blank space that mercifully evokes no memory. In spite of the infinite knowledge that Funes can call to mind at any instant, our narrator suspects that he was not very good at thinking, to think is to ignore or forget differences, to generalize, to abstract. In the teeming world of Irenaeo Funes, there was nothing but particulars. The business of war has become the business of knowledge. Precise geolocation of threats. Fused sensor video. The dream of those in the business of war is a dream of total knowledge. Tactical reconnaissance at standoff range. Those who sell the dream sell the idea that total knowledge. To create one common operating picture of the fast-paced battle space. Delivers precision and efficiency. Of thousands of sensors. And war that is just and exact. The United States will find you and take you out. The Predator Sea Avenger. This dream is a flying dream in which the world is seen totally, known completely, from above. Mission success. Word synonymous with General Atomic's unmanned aircraft systems. From the moment the Montgolfier brothers' balloon sailed over Paris in 1793, maps became real. The human imagination had long portrayed the earth from above, but the cartographer's craft had relied purely on the mind's eye. Surprisingly, the new bird's eye view took 11 years to find military application. The Battle of Fleurus in Belgium was the first played out beneath a manned balloon from which French officers relayed details of Austrian manoeuvres below. Over the century that followed, 
the dream of tactical advantage, of watchtowers in the sky, saw balloons float above battlefields of the American Civil War, the War of the Triple Alliance in Paraguay, and the Franco-Prussian War. Rapid innovation in the 19th century saw spherical balloons replaced by kite balloons. Dirigibles followed, airships that could be directed and steered. By the dawn of the 20th century, the view from above, a real-time battlefield map, had become central to military intelligence. Fixed-wing aircraft, airplanes that is, first appeared above enemy lines in 1911 when Italian pilots flew over Turkish lines in Libya. A month later, the first bomb dropped from above. The First World War would be waged and watched from the sky. The interwar years brought Guernica. The years that followed brought the Battle of Britain, Blitzkrieg and the bombing of Dresden. Battlefield had become battle space. Intelligence and reconnaissance took center stage. The world was rendered as a detailed series of maps, targets, photographs. The people below, too small to be seen. I don't know what this region means to others. It is my birthplace, though now ringed with flame. Miklos Radnoti was born in 1909 in Budapest. His talent as a poet was matched only by his love for his country and his desire to establish himself as one of the great writers of his nation's soul. As a young poet, Radnoti's position in the country he loved was never certain or secure. Deep-rooted anti-Semitism kept him to the margins of Hungarian cultural circles, even as the country sought to reforge its identity as a modern nation in the wake of the Great War. This region for the airman is just a map. He does not know here Verishmarty lived. For him it's factories, barracks. But for me it's crickets, oxen, church towers, gentle farmsteads. Interwar turmoil culminated in a series of laws that declared Jews unfit to bear arms. The war, when it came, would see Radnothi drafted to a forced labour unit. He would be sent on three devastating mobilizations, working in horrific conditions for those who put the nation he loved in the service of the Reich. He, through his sights, sees chimneys, ploughed up fields. I see the workmen trembling for their toil. Woods, birds in orchards, vineyards and graves, by one of which a granddam noiseless weeps. From what up there is a target, rail or works, down here is the dwelling of the signalman. You see him standing here in front of it, the red flag in his hand, around him children, a sheepdog, in the workyards frolicking. Nearby is a park, with footprints of past loves, and kisses, honey sweet or bilberry sour. Radnoti's third mobilization in 1944 saw him sent to the copper mines of Yugoslavia. Alongside thousands of others, he worked for months in unimaginable conditions, in a nightmare world of violence and backbreaking labour. As the summer drew to a close, 
A shift in the war's momentum saw a German retreat from the Balkans. Radnati and three and a half thousand others were to be marched in columns toward Austria. The forced march took months. Even now, his body broken and surrounded on all sides by violence and death, Radnati managed to write, to bear witness. His writing from this time moves away from the classical meters he had mastered, forgoes the lyrical beauty that had marked him out as a great Hungarian poet to those who had noticed. His poems now take on a searing precision, a devastating efficiency, a total knowing. The oxen drool saliva mixed with blood, each one of us is urinating blood. The squad stands about in knots, stinking, mad. Death, hideous, is blowing overhead. Miklos Radnuthi's body was found in 1946. It was identified from amongst 20 others by the coat that he wore, which contained his ID and a small notebook in which his last five poems were recorded. Well, Takesh Radnati's uh, mass grave. The site of the mass grave is outside the town of Abda in Hungary, the place now seen on a map or from a satellite image seems utterly unremarkable. To visit the memorial, to sit and listen to the wind in the trees, is to understand that there are things that we cannot possibly know. Do you even know what a deadline is? Our daughter doesn't know what a deadline is. It's like a day or a time where you have to have a particular thing done. Like this radio piece I'm doing has to be finished today. Now, interestingly, the term originally had nothing to do with time. It was actually a line that prisoners weren't allowed to cross or they'd be shot. It was associated with- I'm beginning to realize that there's a lot that our daughter doesn't know. What's the capital of Eritrea? It's Asmara. What's the longest she doesn't know the longest in river in Europe, where an where otter, an lives, otter lives, or what animal is on the Irish 20p piece. She doesn't know who invented the radio, the spinning jenny, or the ballpoint pen, or who discovered the double helical structure of DNA. Rosalind Franklin. She doesn't know what Irish town was modelled on Versailles. That was Bagnallstown, County Carlow. She doesn't know what Leash and Uzbekistan have in common. They're both doubly landlocked. If Leash or Uzbekistan come up in a quiz, the answer is usually doubly landlocked, okay? She doesn't know the names of Christopher Columbus's ships. The Pestilence, the Daylight Robber, and the Egypt. She doesn't know who played Nurse Megan Roach in the BBC TV series Casualty. That was the wonderful Brenda Fricker. Our daughter doesn't know who scored the winning point in the All-Ireland Hurling Final in 1997. That was County Clare's James E. O'Connor. You'll need to know that kind of stuff now living around here, okay? 
She doesn't know how many horsepower the average horse is. No, it's actually four, four horsepower. She doesn't know who shot JR, JFK, or Mr. Burns, or who had a hit single with You Oughta Know in 1995. Alanis Morissette actually is the answer there. Our daughter doesn't know who directed the 1955 film The Blackboard Jungle. That was Richard Brooks. Or that I once appeared on the RTE quiz show of the same name, wearing a Sonic Youth t-shirt and a look of extreme anxiety. Our daughter doesn't know that the use of the word trivia in books, as tracked by Google, peaked and began to fall rapidly 14 years ago, after climbing steadily from almost zero over the previous century. She doesn't know that I wonder whether this indicates less a decline in her interest in trivia and more a triumph of trivia to the point that it is no longer distinct from other types of knowledge. Our daughter doesn't know how to play the glockenspiel. Show me. Our daughter doesn't know that she hears things that most people don't, that typical minds that they develop learn to filter out supposedly unimportant sounds. She doesn't as yet know what is important and what is not. Our daughter doesn't know that dropping food on the floor for the dog to lick up is not actually that funny. Our daughter doesn't know that the earliest evidence of the human-canine relationship is from the famous Chauvet Cave in France, where two sets of footprints one belonging to a dog, one to a young girl, can be traced for 50 or so meters across the floor of the cave, capturing a fragment of a journey by two little friends some 26,000 years ago. She doesn't know that the summer, the flowers and the leaves will be back. Our daughter doesn't know that the swallows born in the shed the same week that she was born have since learned to fly and have made their way ahead of their parents to some specific location in West Africa using a system of inherited knowledge that is entirely mysterious to us humans. Our daughter doesn't know that based on current life expectancy statistics, she can hope to be around to see the 22nd century. She doesn't know that the future as a subject has in the space of a single generation gone from being a central topic of cultural imagination to being a closed off subject spoken about only in dread terms. She doesn't know that this is one of the things, along with her own stirrings, that keeps me awake at night. Our daughter doesn't know that prior to the Industrial Revolution, it was normal for people in Europe to split their nights into first sleep and second sleep with a few waking hours in between, used for discussing dreams, telling stories, keeping warm, being together. She doesn't know that the butterflies that have been flying around indoors lately, tricked into thinking that it's summer since we turned on the heating, should really be asleep. She doesn't know the words phalacon, papillon, schmetterling or balbaretta or that her mind has the capacity to effortlessly learn any language over the next year or so. Our daughter doesn't know about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which suggests that people's view of the world is affected by the structure of the language that they speak. 
or that this hypothesis is hotly debated in linguistics and philosophy, or that I sometimes wonder where art and the vast realm of non-verbal communication fits into all this. Our daughter doesn't know that the first time she closed her fist around my finger, I was instantly taken in my mind to another hospital, to another time, to another hand holding mine. She doesn't know that in both of these moments of the deepest unknowing, these bookends of life, all knowledge fell away, except for the certainty of knowing another in love. You've been listening to The Culture File Weekly, A Bigger Cloud, a special edition of The Culture File Weekly written and performed by Tygo Sullivan. We'll be back with your regular Culture File come Monday at 6.40pm. Till then, bye now.